Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I'm excited to be with you today. As Ben mentioned, uh, Will and Daniel are off in Texas, Texas visiting uh, Brazos Point, which is one of our partner churches. Um, so they're there this weekend, kind of just doing some reporting, meeting with them, um, having, you know, good time without me. No, just kidding. Uh, now, I'm excited to be here, actually. I am super excited about this series that we're getting into. Um, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we are going to be doing a uh, four-week series on uh, the Advent season, um, something a little bit different than what we've done in the past here at the Mountain Church. In the past, we've kind of just continued to truck through whatever uh, series that we're doing, but uh, as we continue to just kind of um, refine and, and, and uh, come up with a, a different type of preaching schedule that will kind of take us through the year, we've decided that... Uh, this year, um, in particular, that it would be good to have a uh, an Advent season and an Advent sermon series, um, and in particular, um, as we were thinking about what it is we wanted to be um, talking about during this Advent season, um, we kept going back to what we've been talking about for the past couple months with uh, Advent conspiracy, which is which is this idea of worshiping fully, um, and this idea of being able to um, on an entirety as far as ourselves, but also in terms of knowing who Jesus is and knowing who, the, who God is, uh, kind of just coming to him in worship. So what that led to us, us to is I was, as we were thinking about it, is I was brainstorming. Um, you know, a lot of times during Christmas season, obviously we focus on the Christmas story. Um, if, if you've grown up in church and you've been around church for a while, you probably have much of Luke 1 through 3 memorized. Um, because it's probably been read about and preached about several times in your life. Uh, at least that was the case for me. If you're not too familiar with church and you haven't necessarily been growing up in the church, I definitely highly recommend reading Luke 1 through 3 during this holiday season uh, because it's an awesome story of the birth of Christ. Um, that, and the birth of Christ is also talked about in Matthew, but um, Luke in particular does, has a lot of details that are pretty awesome. Um, and a lot of times we focus on that story, and a lot of times during Advent season we'll focus on that and what Jesus accomplished with his life and what he did for us. All great things that we definitely want to keep in mind of because that is a huge part of what this season is all about. But those two things alone aren't the whole story when it comes to the season of Advent, when it comes to the coming Messiah, when it comes to Jesus Christ, when it comes to the coming of Christ. Um, the story begins before then. Um, God, you know, when he, when the Holy Spirit inspired all the writers of the Bible to write the different books that they have in this book, you got to understand this is God creating, crafting over time his one story, this one meta-narrative is the word that we've been using in our study of Judges, in our study of First Samuel. Um, this meta-narrative that is existing in the in scriptures, the story that God has to share with us Yes, this is 66 books written by different people, but it's also one book written by God, the Holy Spirit, through, these, through those men, okay? So we have to understand that. We have to look at that. And so what we wanted to do with this, with this series is go back and look at how God, through his prophecies, through his prophets, through his different promises, was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and how Jesus came and fulfilled all of those prophecies. Now, the reality is actually, I, I, should, I say all of those prophecies. There's a lot of prophecies that God made as far as who Jesus was going to be, who the Messiah was going to be, and Jesus fulfilled them all. We're really going to focus on four of them over the next four, four weeks. 
kind of the big ones, the big cornerstones, pieces of who the Messiah was going to be and why that is important. And I believe that in terms of helping us to just worship fully in this, in this uh, season, it'll give us a greater appreciation. It gives me a greater appreciation, I know. The more I learn about who God is from this story, from this book that he's given us, his word, uh, the more I just fall in love with God, the more that I just fall in love with Jesus and who he is. The more I understand how God crafted this and had this plan throughout time, the more I just have a greater appreciation of how much he loves us, how much he cares about us, how great he is. It's just, it's just an amazing thing. So I really hope that this series helps you to have a greater appreciation of just who God is and just how much he cares about us and how much he had a hand into making sure that his salvation plan came to be here on earth. So today we're going to start this series, and what we're going to launch into is um, the very first one that popped in when we were planning this. It's kind of like one of the biggest ones, and it was one of the first ones that when we really started looking at these that came to be when it came to the promise of the Messiah. That is the idea of the promised king and the fact that there was going to be a promised king coming. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today happens to be um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn to me to that passage. That's the passage we're going to be looking at. Um, I know we just were, it's kind of, it'll be a little weird because just last week and for the past 12 weeks, we've been going through 1 Samuel, okay? So we're going to be jumping ahead in the story a little bit. Um, and, you know, the plan right now, you know, for the next couple of years is eventually we're going to be getting to 2 Samuel. So, you know, in two years from now, you might be hearing the sermon all over again um, with a little bit different spin. So, just be prepared for that. Um, you know, that doesn't give you the reason in two years to skip that Sunday, by the way. Uh, make sure you're still here because it might not be me speaking, so it'll probably be someone even better. Uh, so 2 Samuel 7, and just to kind of give you a context of where, how we, where, where we're at in this, in this part of the story, okay? As you guys know from our series through 1 Samuel, you know, there was, you know, Samuel, the prophet, came to be the final, one of the last judges of Israel, um, people cried out for a king because they were just tired of like thinking that they needed a king just like all the other countries. So God gives them Saul. And we see Saul who's just kind of a, you know, not this, not the guy you think he would be as far as the man who you would want leading God's people. Um, we didn't quite, we don't, there's still more to come in Saul's story that we will get to next year when we come, when we resume first Samuel. Um, but the rest of 1 Samuel kind of highlights Saul's reign. More importantly, it highlights Saul's failures, where Saul fails to obey God completely, where Saul fails to love God completely, and in doing so, and in, and in, and in twice disobeying God, he basically is rejected by God as king and as his appointed person. Um, the and what God does is he ends up appointing a new person, not of Saul's line. He tells Saul that your son will not be king over my people. And instead, he anoints someone new in the rest of 1 Samuel. We see the coming of David, uh, David, this shepherd boy, the youngest brother of this poor family that lives in Bethlehem, which is not a very, um, you know, not, not the place where the, all the rich people would move. It's not Hollywood, all right? It's about, you know, the exact opposite of that. Um, this poor place with the poor family, youngest boy, the shepherd boy, gets anointed to be the next king of Israel. 
And the rest of 1 Samuel, which again, we'll be getting to, so I'm not going to give you like, you know, the total spoilers. spoilers. Well, the rest of 1 Samuel basically highlights the rise of David to pop in popularity and kind of the fall of Saul as he becomes jealous of David, tries to kill David, eventually in battle is killed himself. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. In 2 Samuel, we have the start of, G- of David's rise to be king in place of Saul. And by this point in 2 Samuel 7, David is the established king, all right? Uh, he was a man described as, God, after God, as a man after God's own heart. He was the one that, that God chose more than anyone because of his heart, because of what he saw in David. And he was the man that, that God desired to have on his throne. So David has his established kingdom. He's, he's, he's temporarily in the moment. He's living in a time of peace. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to start reading through this passage. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan was the man who kind of like, not that there was an official title of like, you know, who's the official prophet of Israel, but in the story, we see Nathan being the next one after Samuel to be the one who's kind of sharing God's word with the king. I like the name Nathan too. Uh, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This is David talking to Nathan. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Basically, what David's making this observation is like, something seems wrong here. I'm in this house of cedar, which would have been like, you know, this great, nice palace type house that the king was living in. And the ark of the, the, ark of the covenant, the ark of God, was dwelling inside the tent. It was dwelling inside a tabernacle, which it had been doing since, the, since Israel first started becoming a nation when they first left Egypt. Once the Mosaic law had been given to the people through Moses, they formed a tabernacle because that's what they were told to do, which is this tent. And inside the tabernacle in this tent out of, you know, was, was another part of the tent called the Holy of Holies. And in there was where the Ark of God would rest and lay and dwell. That's kind of where the spirit of the, of the Lord was, was dwelling as he dwelled with the people, as he promised to be with the people of Israel. And even as they moved into the land and conquered the land and, and took over the land, they just continued to move the tabernacle with them and eventually had a resting point in Shiloh and different places. And that's where the ark stayed, was in a tabernacle. And David's kind of the first one to kind of say, this just feels weird, I'm, yeah, I'm king, and great, I have this great house, but why is the ark of God in a tent? Like, God deserves more than me, doesn't he? Doesn't he deserve more praise and honor of me is basically what David is saying. And Nathan says to him, you know, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. In other words, if you want to change that, go for it. And then we get verse 4, but that same night, and it's interesting that the author says, but that same night, it's like God is intervening here. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, God's basically making this point. It's, almost, it's, it's a weird way of basically him praising David, actually like affirming David, like as far as where his heart is at, saying like, 
you know, I've, God at this point has never requested, told his people, you need to build me a house. You need to build me a temple. I need a place of dwelling. I need a permanent place. God never demands that of the people of Israel. He never tells any of the judges that. He didn't say that to Saul. This is David in his own heart, his own heart of humility, his own heart to desire after God, deciding that I want to, like, God deserves a place. God deserves a, a building. He wants to build the temple, in other words. And God's affirming that, saying, I've never asked that, and yet here you are, you know, saying why, you know, you want to build this. But then he continues in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So this is, again, evidence that God is basically affirming David in where his heart is at in this. Saying, you know, that like, not only is it awesome, like, I've taken you, you know, I've risen you up from this poor, from being a poor shepherd to now being king over Israel. And I am making you this promise because of where your heart is that I am going, that, you know, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. I'm going to deliver the land from any enemies. They will know a peace that they haven't known in recent years. Because as we studied through Judges, and even as we were studying for Samuel, a constant affliction hitting the Israeli people was constantly war. They were constantly being attacked because they constantly kept sinning against God. And every time they turned their back from God, God just said, fine, I'll let you off to your own devices. And they, had, they ended up having people come and conquer them and be, and, you know, hit them in the war. So God's praising them, and God says, I will make you a house. I will make your name great. He's starting to say, give this blessing to, to David, saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. Because of your heart, David, because of where you are, I am going to bestow upon you this blessing. And so far... It's pretty straightforward. And the verse 12 is when it becomes extra special when, when, and where we're going to start focusing on, starting with verse 12. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So remember with Saul, this is actually like basically the exact opposite that he told Saul. And when, I mean, we haven't read that part, but when we get to 1 Samuel, you'll see this is almost the exact opposite of what's been, what was told to Saul. Saul was basically told, your offspring aren't going to have a kingdom because of where your heart is, your failures. You know, I am going to remove the, king, the kingship from your family. Your offspring will not know what it is to be king. David gets the exact opposite. He gets promised that his offspring, he's going to establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, it's at this point that this promise that God is bestowing upon David is clearly starting to become more than just a promise about David's son, his direct son. It's becoming more of a 
greater promise that God is bestowing upon David, what we call, you know, a messianic promise, a promise that has a little bit extra, uh, a lot extra, (laughs) oomph and importance to it, okay? And the reason why we know that is because while some of this can, we okay, so in case you guys, history of Israel again, David's son, the one that would take over him for him as king was Solomon, okay? And Solomon did have a really great kingdom, okay? It was actually much bigger than any that, than, than David's own kingdom. Um, Solomon was pretty successful, especially early on and during his reign. And Solomon is the one who ultimately builds the temple. Okay? So while some of this can directly be related to Solomon, this last line that he says in verse 13 is the one that makes you know that he's talking about something even greater than Samuel or than Solomon. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And the reason why, there's a few reasons why we know that this is talking about something greater than just Solomon. One of which being just the simple fact that Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. In fact, Solomon's kingdom ended as soon as he died. Because after he died, one of his sons, kind of a, I don't know what to call it, airhead, but makes a really poor choice and the kingdom ends up divided and fractured into two. It's no longer the same kingdom. There's two different kingdoms. So we know Solomon's kingdom doesn't last forever. So this has to be something bigger than just a person, just a regular man. God is talking about something more. God is promising something more. In verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. A lot of messianic promises and prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, ones that are talking about the coming Messiah, are similar in style to this, where there are Promises that are made, which in some small, incomplete ways, we see fulfilled by people. Okay? In some ways, Solomon does fill some of this prophecy, but he does so incompletely because he is a man, and ultimately we see Solomon's failures as he becomes distracted by all his different wives and these concubines that he ends up taking and ultimately allowing them to bring in idol worship into Israel. So while Solomon has some qualities of him that is, you know, somewhat fulfilling of, these prophe- of a prophecy like this, we also see the human side of Solomon just failing. And where the messianic promise comes in and doubles it is it's a promise of someone who is to come after, who is to come later, that will fulfill this prophecy completely. And that will truly have a kingdom that will be established forever. That will truly have a kingdom of the line of David, which is the promise that God has given David, that from your line, David, there will be one that will come up, the my Messiah that is coming up, that will have a kingdom that will be established forever. And yet kingdom will know no end. He said, it will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These are huge promises 
that David has given. And David responds, we're not going to read the full response from verse 18 and on, but I encourage you to read it later. He responds humbly and, and just like full of praise, but even makes a comment in verse 19 that shows that he, know, he, he gets what God is telling him, that he gets that this is more than just a promise of his own personal son, but what's to come down the line. Because he says this, he says, you have spoken, in verse, end of verse 19, he says, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. He gets it that this is greater than just his own kingship, that this is about all of mankind, that God is promising deliverance and salvation for him. God is promising to bring his kingdom into play here. And when we look, again, talking about that meta narrative from the beginning, what I was talking about, when you look at scripture, you can see from the beginning, God having promised that this was going to happen, that he was going to bless all the other nations. You go back to even Genesis, okay? In the book of Genesis, we have a few instances, the very first prophecy being in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve failed to hold, uphold to God's perfect standards. We have God promising, telling, talking to the snake at one point, the serpent saying, you know, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and her, and her you and her offspring. He will, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. He's already promising that there's someone to come that is going to put Satan in his place. Then you fast forward to the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham gets this amazing promise about being made into, the great, into a great nation, which is Israel. Israel being the descendants of Abraham. And the great nation that he's becoming, he says, I will, you will be blessed. And from you, all other nations will be blessed. And when he gives them the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant, it, it's, it's a way for God to say, like, if you follow this law, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, you, you can read all these blessings that God promises the nation of Israel. If you follow my commands, if you can just, you know, stay faithful to me, these are all the blessings I will heap upon you. The nation of Israel had that opportunity to be that nation that would, through them, all other nations would be blessed if they could just follow the law. But what we see is because they are human, because they're a man, because they are flawed, they're unable to do so. And so time and time again, they fall into captivity and they receive the opposite of blessings. They receive the curses by them failing to uphold the law. And because they're not able to do it, they get a king. They think the king will be able to lead them the right way. The king keeps failing. Saul fails them. David starts leading them on the very path, but God's like, I, there needs to be something more here. And he knew it from the beginning. He had this all planned out from the beginning. And he starts promising this to David. He says, I'm going to be giving you a descendant. You have an heir. And David just knows exactly what God is talking about when he says in that line, he says, this is for all mankind because he knows what God is promising is the fulfillment of that prophecy given to Abraham all those years ago that through the nation of Israel, now through David's line, will come the one who through them, him, all nations shall be blessed. This is for all mankind, he says, which is something totally different and, and uh, completely different from what we would normally see from a king because he's not even talking about just his own people. He gets it. He knows this is a worldwide thing happening, that this is something big that God is promising. And so we have this promised king to come from the line of David. And from this promise in 2 Samuel 7, 
there's a lot of other prophecies that happen later in the Old Testament that just kind of reaffirm this. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. you. You don't necessarily have to flip them. Maybe jot them down or whatever if you want to look at them. Um, Isaiah 11, verse 1, really the first five verses, says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, the stump of Jesse, Jesse was, Dan, was David's father. So I guess in this case, David is the stump. Okay? Uh, no. <laughs> um, but talking about David, so a stump, the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah prophesying for about the coming Messiah, talking about how he's going to be a descendant of David. He looks at that prophecy made back in 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah was well aware of the scripture, plus he's receiving this word directly from God himself, and he knows that this promise that God made David, even though at this point, David's kingdom looks nothing like what it was. In actual history, like I said, the kingdom is divided in two. The northern kingdom has already been conquered and spread out throughout the earth. And the lower kingdom where, where Jerusalem was, where Isaiah is, is under pressure as well and threat as well because they keep walking away. And yet Isaiah holding to this promise that God made to David. And Jeremiah 23 Verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's a fascinating, you know, continuation of this prophecy, the continuation that seeing how Jeremiah, Isaiah, all these other prophets see this promise given to David as one that hasn't been fulfilled yet in their day, but they believe and they know that their God is faithful and he's going to bring this promise to be. He's going to fulfill this promise that there is one to come that is going to make this happen and he's going to be of David's line. And it's this really awesome thing. And then we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but as, you, as we get into like how does Jesus fulfill this, I really want to encourage you, if you I don't know if you, when the last time was you read through the book of Matthew, but the gospel of Matthew um, Matthew wrote that in his humanness, um, you know, like obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but one of the big focuses that he was having was a Jewish audience. He was wanting to talk to a Jewish audience. And throughout the book of Matthew, the constant theme you will see Matthew basically trying to prove to the Jewish audience is that Jesus is this promised king that you have been waiting for all these years. 
And he starts it right off in the beginning. Matthew 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, start, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, and he starts it with Abraham. He starts it with Abraham because he's proven that this is, he is a descendant of Israel. And he goes through the first section, and then he, his next section starts with David. And how Jesus was a descendant of David. He's making this evidence, this proof that Jesus is this promised one to come that God has given to us. This promised king from David's line. Matthew's the only one who talks about the three wise men coming to visit Jesus after Jesus was born. Why, why is Matthew the only one who, who thinks this is important enough to say? Because Matthew is emphasizing Jesus' kingship. Because this is what would happen when the new king was born, you would have men from foreign countries coming to give gifts. And these three men, these three wise men from the East that, were just, that, that don't really, don't know a ton about their background, but we know that they knew of the promised king to come. And in fact, when they go to see Herod, they even say, where is he that was born king of the Jews? That's the line they give. That's the question they pose. Where is he that was born king of the Jews? And the gifts they give him, gold, myrrh, and frankincense, are all gifts that would be befit of a king. As we go through this Advent series, um, and I know it's not in your notes. Your notes are blank. I apologize for that. That's partly, but it's all pretty much my fault. Um, with the holiday and with Dave and Daniel leaving on Friday, we didn't have, I didn't have enough time to get them into your notes, but we were talking about having a set of questions as we've been going through with the other studies we've been doing as well, and we kind of, I could, we kind of adapted three new questions, kind of pulling from different things, and uh, the three questions are, and you can jot these down, you know, in your notes, and the, they should be in the notes to come um, for, the next, for the rest of the series, but one is, what is the promise God made? Two, why is this promise important? Why does God make it? And three, how does Jesus fulfill the promise? So question one is, is pretty straightforward. It's kind of pulling from that question of when we ask, like, what is, what is this passage saying? What does this passage mean? Uh, when we look at the passage in 2 Samuel, when we look at these other prophecies, you know, what is, what is the promise that God is making? It's pretty clear. God is promising a king. God is promising someone to establish his kingdom here on earth. And the awesome thing about it is he's not just establishing a king, but he's, establishing, he's, he's promising a king that will come from the line of David. And what's amazing about that is, like, as God even says in his, in his, in his uh, statement to David, is that David was someone that God raised up as, from a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. It doesn't get much more lowly and poor and further away from a king as a shepherd boy. And yet that is who God picked to be his king, to be the king over, to be, to be his chosen king of the people of Israel. That is who God raises up into this kingship. And then ultimately because of his heart, because his heart is still focused on God and wanting to please God and worship God fully, that we see God giving him this promise of a king that would come from his line, that his kingship, his kingdom would know no end. It would be an established kingship forever. It's such, a, it's such an awesome promise that God makes to David. 
there would be a king coming from his line whose kingdom would know no end. I mean, like I said, I encourage you to read the rest of 2 Samuel 7 because, like, David's response, I mean, I know my response. I'd be blown away. I mean, how are you not blown away and humbled by that? To have such an amazing promise given to you. And when it comes to question two is why is this promise important? Why does God make it? Again, this goes back, this is, and this question is kind of framed from the meta-narrative, like well, how does this fit in the meta-narrative of Scripture that we see? Again, this goes back, even like I was saying, to the very beginning in Genesis. Because in the very beginning of Genesis, when you see Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God, when you see Adam and Eve choosing to eat of the fruit, even though God told them not to, basically what is... You can't miss the line that Satan says to Eve when he's trying to tempt her. He says, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. Ultimately, what Adam and Eve eating of that fruit is, is them rejecting God as their king, as their Lord, as their master, saying, no, we want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. I mean, there's a reason why it's called the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. This is basically them saying, we want to do it our way. And from that very beginning, then from after the fall, you have this big problem of man basically rejecting God as king. Basically rejecting God as their rightful Lord and master. And wanting to do things their way. Wanting to live by their own morality or lack thereof. Wanting to chase after their ambitions, their goals, their desires, their pleasure. And so it's very important that when God is making a promise about the coming Messiah, that he would make it clear that he was going to be a promised king. He was going to be the king of kings. He was going to be, have a kingdom that she'll know no end because he was going to basically be setting right what was made wrong in the very beginning when man fell into sin. He was bringing about the kingship that should have been established here on earth from the very beginning. And so it's really important to understand that's why God makes this promise about the Messiah being a king. Because it's an important to understand that this is, the, this is the place of honor that Jesus holds, that the Messiah was to hold. And we get to question three, and how does Jesus fulfill the promise? We already told you a little bit about his genealogy coming to fulfill the promise because he was of the line of David. In fact, if you look at uh, the genealogy in Luke, there's a few differences in there, and, people, and uh, most biblical scholars believe that is because not only was Joseph his earthly father, although we know that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, even, even, even as Joseph was a descendant of David, Mary as well, her genealogy can be traced all the way to David, which is why they think there's a little bit of differences between the two genealogies, is one is tracing Mary's genealogy and one is tra- tracing Joseph's genealogy. Um, so on both sides, we have Jesus being a descendant of David. And as I told you, people right away as he's born, other people from the outside recognized him as king. 
But more importantly, there's things that Jesus does in his life. There's other ways that Jesus is testified about that show his kingship. I think it's, it's, an, it's kind of a, 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 an ironic thing, but um, something that I think God uses even despite as it was used for mocking that the soldiers of, of uh, the Roman soldiers in Pilate, you know, put upon Jesus' cross, King of the Jews, as a way to mock him, as a way to like kind of proclaim uh, how ridiculous it was. And yet, it's almost a proclamation of what's really going on. That here is Jesus, the King, promised King to come, dying on a cross to sacrifice. The people, his disciples would have was seeing him as king when he is raised from the dead and his, which is raising from the dead. It basically is God's establishing him as righteous, as the one true king. Now, you know, he, when he ascends to heaven, he ascends to heaven to sit in the right hand of God because God has put him in that place of honor because of his obedience, because of the fact that he was perfect in every way and was perfectly obedient to God, even to the point of death. He receives that place of honor. He's raised from the dead and now is kingship is established. And, and for the disciples, they think that's going to be right then and there, that this kingdom, his kingship is going to start right there on earth, right when he's raised. We see in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, his, one of the disciples say, so are you now going to bring the king? Like, are we going to have kingdom, the kingdom of God right here on earth as has been coming? Like, they're ready to go to war, make this happen. But, God, but Jesus says at that point, it's not for you to know when, when, the, time, when the time shall come but then promising his return that he will be back. Probably one of the more beautiful pieces for me about Jesus fulfilling the promise of king. When he first enters Jerusalem, before on the week that he was to be killed, um, if you remember, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as people are praising him and singing his name. And it was very much a representation that would exist back then. Um, this figure, this symbolism, this illustration um, that when a king came in riding on a donkey, he was bringing peace to the city versus riding on a horse where he was bringing war. And Jesus, because of his mission here on earth when he was here, when he was born, when he lived his life, his mission out here on earth was to right the wrong in the, in, in the hearts of men, to bring about God's righteousness, to make it possible that we might be made righteous. Because that is his mission here on earth, his mission was to bring peace to mankind, to allow it to be, to basically extend it to mankind. And he rides in a donkey as a symbolism of God basically extending his peace to mankind, to man, saying, look, I, he, my king comes in peace. The promised king is coming here in peace. In the book of Revelation, John makes another promise, or makes another prophecy, that when Jesus' is second coming, um, he comes riding in on a horse, ready for war. And he even says, that, like, the, the, the angels are telling the birds, be ready because you're going to be picking the bones and the, and the things of all those that fall before him. And all the enemies of the world mount against Jesus and are basically killed and slaughtered as they 
try to oppose Jesus and who he is. I think where I, where, where I was thinking that and where I was wanting to like, as I was studying this, I was thinking about Jesus as our king. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a passage in Philippians where Paul says, um, at the name of Jesus, every, tongue, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord. Another name for Lord is master or ruler in that case. And, that, and the, the, the Greek word that he uses there can be interpreted as master or ruler. In other words, every knee at some point is going to bow before Jesus and proclaim him to be their king. They're going to recognize who he is. And the question that remains for us, the question that remains for us as we're living here is, which king are you going to respond to when it comes to Jesus? Are you going to respond to his offer of peace that he's given to you now and proclaim him while you have the chance right now to be the true king of your life, the true ruler of your life, the true master of your life, and you're going to seek to serve him? Or are we going to continue to try to rule our own lives, but one day be confronted by the fact that when Jesus does come back, when Jesus does return to bring his kingdom here, that now you find yourself on the wrong side of the battlefield. Now you find yourself being forced to bow to Jesus and not be found with his righteousness in you. So the question to take away for today is, how are you responding to Jesus' kingship in your life? Are you truly accepting the amazing gift of peace that he has offered to us through his sacrifice on the cross, through his taking of your sin, through his proclaiming his own righteousness upon you? Are you responding to him in that way and, and saying, Jesus, yes, I, I, you are my king. You are the one I want to follow. You are the one I desire. You alone. Like This is the plan that God had from the very beginning. A lot of uh, scholar, biblical scholars love to use this phrase of like, um, um, about like kind of like an already not yet or like kind of the idea that in some ways here today because Jesus accomplished what he's accomplished and if we choose to follow Jesus we can have glimpses of that kingdom of heaven right here on earth if we choose to serve him and follow him and make him our king and one day he's going to come and fulfill it in even a greater level when he returns and we're going to have that amazing time to just dwell in his presence forever but even here on earth today, if we choose to accept him as our king, as we choose to see what he has done for us, and we choose to accept that offer of peace, we can have a life that has way more meaning than anything this world can offer you. Bringing about his kingdom here on earth for people that so desperately need to hear that good news. That they have one who loves them so much that he doesn't just leave us to be in our own devices, even though that's what our hearts desire, even though it's what our hearts chase after. He saw Adam and Eve in their original sin and their original de- decision to try to move away from him, and God was filled with such compassion that from then, from that moment on, all he is doing throughout Scripture is bringing about his promised salvation for us. 
How are you going to, re- how are you responding to Jesus' kingship in your life today? During this Advent season, during this time where we're, we're challenging ourselves to what does it mean to worship fully this season? What is it that God is calling you to do, that your king, Jesus, is calling you to do with your life, with your time, with your money this season, so that you can proclaim the good news of who he is to others, rather than just chasing after the, all the extra little things you can have for yourself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just your great promise that we have in you, Lord, that you've given to us, that you bestowed upon us, Lord, that this, your amazing son, Jesus Christ, who you gave to us all those years ago, the promised king that we so desperately needed, Lord, not to come and bring war and, and, and punish us for our iniquities, Lord, but to save us from them. Oh, thank you so much for your amazing grace, for your amazing love. I pray today, Lord, that as we are reminded of that, as we go out this week, Lord, that we would be asking ourselves, how are we responding to your kingship? How are we making you Lord of our lives? How are we being obedient to you and proclaiming you as our Lord to others? I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.